Hi, welcome back to the horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. Here we are, episode 60. 60. (laughs) (laughs) And we have a good one, I think. I think this is our first entry into the Flaniverse. The Flaniverse. The Flaniverse. The Mike Flanagan universe. Ooh. With 2016's Hush. I've been so excited to do this one. I have heard about this one. I didn't realize I was going to like it so much. I thought it was just typical home invasion. It's not. It's no. not quite your typical home invasion situation. You know, we have When a Stranger Calls, which I think we had so much fun with that home invasion. I agree. This is fun in a different way. (laughs) It's actually scary. (laughs) It is actually very scary. And I think one of the things that makes this so scary is actually the fact that we see the killer's face. He is really creepy. Mm. We don't ever really learn that much about him. Very similar to the man in When a Stranger Calls. And this is also the man. He is the man. That's his name. Yeah, we. you're right. We don't even get a name. But he's so sinister. He is characterized unlike the other guy from When a Stranger Calls. And I think that it just underscores how sick and twisted he is. And it's also kind of funny sometimes. I don't know, but really good. I mean, they're both similar in the same way where it's the person on the outside really wants to toy with the person on the inside. It's very cat and mouse. Especially being that our final girl in this movie has a disability. Mm-hmm. This guy truly thinks that he's going to have an easy night ahead of him, but he does not. So getting into our ladies, our main girl is Maddie. She is played by by Icon (laughs) and huge celebrity crush of mine, Kate Siegel. She is in Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Blind Manor, Midnight Mass, Gerald's Game, Ouija Origin of Evil, Oculus. And I thought you would appreciate this. The upcoming (gasps) The Fall of the House of Usher. Oh my God. I'm so excited. Also. Don't tell me she's the twin sister. I have no idea. Oh my I actually God, have, I wanted to be the twin sister. I actually have no idea. But most of the things that I just mentioned are directed by her husband, Mike Flanagan, who wrote this movie, but Siegel serves as a co-writer of this film. So they wrote this in tandem. Oh, nice. So they were already married by the time this film came around. I think so. I don't know. I love them as a pairing, just like a horror power couple. And Kate Siegel is also a voice actress on a couple horror podcasts, including Calling Darkness and the No Sleep podcast. Wait, so what does that mean? She's a voiceover? So it's like if a podcast is like acted out (gasps) more narratively, she's a voice actress on those podcasts. really neat. Yeah. Yeah. She is really loyal to the genre. Oh my God. Again, huge crush on her. And then we also have Sarah, who plays her neighbor. She is played by Samantha Sloyan. She is in Midnight Mass, which I know you saw Midnight Mass. Yes, but who is she in Midnight Mass? The long braid, like... The fanatical, yeah. Oh! That's her. My gosh, I didn't even recognize her. No, that's her. Everything about her in this movie is completely different. Yeah, she's the fanatical. Oh my god, that's awesome. Yes. I would like to rewatch Midnight Mass. I think I watched it around this time last year, and I loved it, and I could see myself rewatching it. I just watched Midnight Mass recently, and it actually has a very interesting tie-in with this movie, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. She's also in The Midnight Club, which is also another Mike Flanagan work that came out this year. She's a very hated character in Grey's Anatomy, which (laughs) I don't like her in her role in Grey's Anatomy either. Also in the upcoming The Fall of the House of Usher. Oh, because The Fall of the House of Usher has, I think, three characters in it. Yeah, I don't know who plays who. I know, I'm so excited. excited. Some pre-plot trivia. 
So Flanagan and Siegel hired a deaf consultant to vet the script and teach Siegel American Sign Language to prepare her for this film because her character, Maddie, is mute and deaf. Because the main character is deaf and mute, the film contains less than 15 minutes of dialogue, meaning more than 70 minutes occur without a single word being spoken. And I just put this in here because it's just a good endorsement. Horror King, Stephen King, (laughs) said of Hush, how good is Hush up there with Halloween and even more Wait Until Dark, White Knuckle Time. So we have not talked about Wait Until Dark on this podcast, but Flanagan and Siegel credited their inspiration to 1967's Wait Until Dark, a movie starring Audrey Hepburn, (gasps) who plays a blind woman whose house is invaded by three burglars, and she uses her disability and difference to outwit and outsmart them to survive. What? Yeah. Audrey Hepburn? In a horror movie, yeah. That is so cool. Wouldn't it be cool if one time we did like a vintage episode? Oh, yeah. Because there's one my dad talks about a lot. I think it might also be Stephen King. It's like some guy accidentally witnesses his neighbor be murdered. And Mm -hmm. then he's like whisked into this whole conspiracy. It sounds about right for a Mm. King film. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. So we begin, we are looking at a cabin-esque house in the woods. And someone is drinking wine and making a delicious looking dinner. Oh, it's Maddie, our main character. She is reading the recipe, making her dinner. Slowly, the dinner making sounds start to fade out. And this is the first implication that Maddie is deaf. Next thing, her friend and neighbor Sarah texts her and asks if she can pop by. Sarah arrives. She walks down the driveway. So we know that she is, again, her neighbor. She lives very close by within walking distance easily. They chat with sign language. Sarah is showing Maddie that she's getting better. However, Maddie can also read lips. So maybe in the areas where Sarah still needs more practice, she can still speak and Maddie can understand her. Sarah's dialogue confirms that there was some kind of accident or incident, which of course is filled in a little bit more later as we get into the plot. And that was actually a change that was made as a suggestion from the deaf consultant was that Maddie was a latent deaf person or somebody who became deaf and wasn't born deaf. Because you can tell that the way that she uses ASL and the way that she like isolated herself after she became sick and lost her hearing and her speech is kind of emblematic of just her as a person and not necessarily her disability because Mm -hmm. they didn't want to paint the picture that folks who are deaf or are mute isolate themselves it was an experience that came along with the trauma of losing her hearing and losing her ability to communicate in the way that she was you know raised being able to do interesting okay and this comes through a conversation that sarah and maddie are having maddie is a published author and Mm -hmm. sarah is returning her book midnight mass Sarah says, I loved Riley. I loved Aaron. And we watched Midnight Mass and Kate Zuckel plays Aaron in Midnight Mass. And Midnight Mass came out five or six years after Hush came out. So the foresight is just so amazing. It is amazing. It was such a like, like I was geeking out definitely. So Sarah is asking Maddie, like, oh, well, how did you come up with the ending? And Maddie's describing, I have writer brain. I come to every possible ending in my head. I just listen to the voice that's in my head. And this is where we learn about her condition. Sarah asks if her inner voice sounds like a child since she was 13 when she lost her hearing. Mm -hmm. And Maddie says, no, you know, it actually sounds like my mom. So she's talking about how she hears herself, how she's able to talk to herself and the way that she is able to hear. And that's through the voice of her mom in her head. 
There's a cute little joke where Sarah's trying really hard to communicate through ASL, even though Maddie can read lips. And she tries to say in ASL, I think you're a really good storyteller. But she ends up saying in ASL, I think you're a good kisser. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's a very sweet moment. Mm -hmm. And they laugh about it. Meanwhile, they're having this conversation all of a sudden. Hello, dinner was cooking inside. What's going on? A fire alarm goes off. Maddie and Sarah rush in the house. The house is filled with smoke. The beautiful, gorgeous dinner is burnt to a crisp. So Sarah invites Maddie over for dinner attempt part two. She's like, we can order food. We can hang out, whatever. But Maddie declines. She says she has to work on her writing. So Sarah says, all right. And she walks away. She had mentioned something. Her boyfriend would be home in an hour. So she'll spend the night with him. And as she walks away, Maddie gets a text from Craig. Craig. (laughs) Okay. Saying, thought about you today. So we can tell by Maddie's reaction that this might be an ex of sorts. She deletes the message thread. Yes. And this is where she's putting the Midnight Mass book back on her shelf and we get a close up on her author's bio, which says that she got hearing loss and temporary vocal paralysis that became permanent after getting bacterial meningitis when she was a kid. Maddie is staring at her manuscript. She's having some writer's block. Her inner monologue is arguing with itself. (laughs) Yeah. She goes to FaceTime Craig twice and ends up ending the call twice. But one of them had to have gone through because he ends up calling back and she ignores it. I love that she ignores it. It's like, bitch, you called him. Twice. (laughs) But it's also showing. And I think this is something that not a lot of media does. Like, yeah, she's deaf and mute, but she's still having these relationship problems. And she's still having this ex who's trying to like slide back in the DMs. It's humanizing her. And I appreciated that. Also, I think anytime you know you're going to deal with a home invasion movie, I think that one of the first thoughts is it's somebody that the victim knows. knows Exactly. And so I think that we're starting to sow little seeds. Like first, it's like, my boyfriend's going to be home in an hour, Mm -hmm. Sarah says. Then it's like, Craig is texting. So we're starting to introduce people that maybe are going to be relevant later. I wrote, these glass doors are scary giving Halloween. Like the fact that she has no blinds. motherfucker. (laughs) No curtains. Oh my God. I think I am so much more aware of my blinds since I started watching horror movies. Oh yeah. I keep them shut. (laughs) Shut. But all I'll say is she ends up using it to her advantage, Mm -hmm. which I like because it's not like she ends up running around the house with her blinds open and we're like, why are you leaving your blinds open? Right. She is smart and we can see her using that. And so I do think it becomes a tool and I appreciate that it's not just this like senseless thing that no one's paying attention to for some reason. But she dumps out her failed dinner. And this scene I saw was criticized by folks who are hard of hearing that watch this movie because she's dumping out this failed dinner and Sarah runs and slams into her glass door and is screaming, crying, bleeding, pounding on the door. She's being pursued. She's saying, Maddie, please let me in. But Maddie can't hear her because she has her back turned. However, with the fire alarm that went off, the fire alarm was piercing. It had vibrations. It had loud and bright flashing lights because she said, like, even if I'm sleeping, I should be able to feel the vibrations. Where if Sarah is right behind her, 
and slamming her body against this door, you would think that Maddie would be able to feel that there is a disturbance and she's just acting like there's nothing there. And there are times where Sarah is in her periphery. Yeah. She's not always to Maddie's back. Like Maddie sometimes has her profile to the glass. And I'm like, wouldn't you, in addition to feeling that vibration, wouldn't you like see this erratic movement? It would be so different than what you would be expecting. Horror movie logic. Yeah. (laughs) We're chucking it up to that. But either way, Sarah ends up being stabbed against (sighs) a door by a man in a mask. And the man notices Maddie not taking notice. And he's staring at her through the glass. He taps and then knocks on the door and Maddie doesn't react. And then he just ends up dragging Sarah's body away. Sarah is dead. So later, Maddie is sitting on the couch. She's continuing to try to work through her writer's block. I loved what she wrote down. Did you see what she wrote in her laptop? When she was like, give me the money. Or like, I want a lot of money. She writes, Erin realized she was a shitty writer and I'm going to die of old age before I publish again. La la la, blah blah blah, the end, money now, please. (laughs) I'm like, it reminds me of any paper I wrote as an English major in college. (laughs) It's really good. I've had students turn in papers where they like forgot to change the title of their essay that they titled. They were like, this stupid paper or whatever, and you get it and you circle it and you're like, hey, adjust your title. (laughs) Pay attention, please. Thank you. So we know at this point that the killer knows that Maddie is deaf. And so as she's sitting on the couch, he sneaks into her house. Something also important, Maddie has a cat, an outdoor cat. We had already seen her kind of open the sliding glass door, shake the food around. So she seems like she's kind of leaving the door unlocked because maybe she's frequently coming in and out for the cat. I don't know, but the killer is able to come in really easily. He's standing behind Maddie as she's typing this humorous dialogue on her laptop. And right before it seems like he's going to make a move, she has a friend FaceTime her. Immediately, he moves out of view of the laptop camera. Maddie picks up the call. It's her friend. Her sister. Oh, her sister. What are they going to... They don't look anything alike. (laughs) So she is talking to Maddie, trying to implore her to come back to the city, but Maddie declines. Her sister is saying all this stuff like, I hate that you're alone. Like a really conveniently placed FaceTime for this killer who just so happens to be listening to this whole conversation. She's calling her Squish. That makes a lot of sense that they're sisters because she's like, you're Squish or... Is it Squish? Yeah. Yeah. And I like that. She's like, I don't like that you isolate yourself the way that you do. (laughs) And Maddie's like, isolation happened to me. I didn't pick it. Mm. So really, again, talking back to her experience and her trauma, all that kind of stuff. Then all of a sudden, her sister says something like, what was that? It looks like I saw something move. Maddie brushes it off immediately. Oh, it's the cat. Bitch. Her cat's name is Bitch. (laughs) She must have come back inside. So the door was probably like cracked open already. If she thought the cat would have just come inside, because there's no cat door, she has to open the sliding glass. Yeah, I wrote that she leaves the door open and walks away and sits with her back to the door. Oh, fuck. No. She doesn't give a fuck. When the man walked in the house, he took her phone off the counter. Mm -hmm. Because then as she gets back to work on her manuscript, she receives a photo message of her sitting in her living room from her own phone because she's on her laptop. So I'm like, oh, shit. Yes. And previously when she had gotten up to look for the cat, she saw the cat actually wasn't around. We had this building suspense and I thought this was really smart because the movie had already established this back and forth between iMessage on her Mac and her phone. And so I I love that they use that because I have a Mac and a phone and I'm always, 
you know, especially if I'm working on something, I'm back and forth, back and forth. So it felt very realistic. I thought the technology was used very authentically there. So yeah, she gets a fucking, she gets a bunch of fucking pictures of herself on her iMessage, which is so scary. And so she, of course, realizes she's being locked. So she stands up, <sighs> moves to the door. I can't believe I watched this. It was broad daylight when I watched this. <laughs> I was like, how did I do this? Oh yeah, it was like noon right. on a Sunday. She goes and she moves to the sliding glass door and she looks out ever so slowly and she sees the man in the mask standing there looking in at her. So they kind of have this moment giving like Wild West, who's going to draw the metaphorical gun? It's Maddie. She bolts to the door, shuts it, locks it before he gets to it. They play kind of like cat and mouse around the house with her trying to get to all the doors to lock them before he can. I'm like, why were they all unlocked? She doesn't give a fuck. All of her doors, all of her doors, are, which I just, I don't, in this day and age, even 2016 in the woods, lock Everything's locked doors. behind me. Yeah. She races to her computer and tries to call 911, but then he cuts her power. So there's no Wi-Fi. They stare at each other through the window. He slides a knife along the window pane. It makes a really screechy, unpleasant sound. Yeah. At this point in the movie, we're just hearing the sound effects of these interactions. Yes. And of course, him, because he does have some dialogue. Yeah. And then he slashes her tires as she watches him do it. He disappears from sight, and then she decides to grab some lipstick and write on the glass door, and then she sits back and shines a flashlight on the door so he can read it. So she wrote backwards, won't tell, didn't see face, boyfriend coming home. And I wrote, okay, Casey Becker. <laughs> because that's what she does in Scream, saying, yes. like, my hunky football boyfriend <laughs> is coming over and is going to kick your ass. <laughs> However, the killer responds by taking off his mask and revealing his face, asks her if she can read lips. She confirms. He then taunts her with the threat of wanting to break in and quotes the conversation she had just had with her sister about being alone and isolated. So she knows that he knows it's just her out here. And says, well, you've seen my face now, haven't you? Mm -hmm. So then he, of course, immediately is acting like a sicko. I mean, he has been the whole time, but obviously feeling confident that this will just be a fun game for him. He says, we can have some fun. Enjoy it before walking away. Then Maddie goes into her house away from the staircase. She grabs a knife and a hammer to try to arm herself. And she moves through the house and initially tries to barricade herself into a bedroom. I said, let's hope this doesn't go like Friday the 13th, where they barricade <laughs> themselves in that room and then just have to unbarricade themselves in that room. <laughs> well, it kind of goes a little a something little like, that. like that. Okay, because she's in a room with windows. Also, there is a second floor, but it's kind of like a loft. Mm -hmm. So most of this house is first floor. She's in a first floor bedroom and she sees through the light cast on the wall from the window behind her that there is something at the window. I love this. I love this. <laughs> you would. I would. I also wrote, I like this camera work because when she's standing with the knife and the hammer, the camera is constantly circling her as if someone's watching her. And that's exactly what the man is doing outside. He keeps like circling the house with his crossbow and just kind of. Yeah, he has a crossbow. Oh, I have thoughts about the crossbow. Okay, I'm I am looking forward to that because that is such a specific choice. Oh my God. So... <laughs> 
she's sitting with her back, like next to the window, watching the door that's barricaded. And he begins banging on it lightly. You hear the banging and it sounds soft. And then you pan to outside and the banging is Sarah's hand. The man is holding up Sarah's body and banging her hand against the window. And Maddie looks out, unbarricades herself, runs out of the room as the man makes Sarah wave goodbye as she runs outside and she just fucking like collapses and cries without a sound. We know Sarah's dead. Right. But Maddie didn't know that. No. So this is such a heartbreaking, twisted moment. So she's fully stunned. She's crying. But somehow survival instincts are really kicking in. She remembers, she has this flashback, that Sarah keeps her phone in the back pocket of her American Eagle jeans. (laughs) They are American (laughs) Eagle jeans. (laughs) I know that logo. Anywhere, baby. Maddie is smart. She uses her car keys to trigger her car alarm and distract the killer towards the front of the house so she can open up the back window and try to retrieve Sarah's phone from the corpse that's now like laying over the air conditioning unit. However, (laughs) she is caught by the killer before she can grab it. She realizes the killer is coming. She's able to see him and get back inside and shut the window before he can get to her. She actually manages to stab him in the arm with the knife that she has armed herself with before she shuts the window. But this just makes him fucking pissed. He taunts her by showing that he had had Sarah's phone the whole time. He puts it back on Sarah's corpse to taunt her like, here's the phone now. And she slowly walks away from the window. Yeah, she's hiding from view as he continues circling the house. And I wrote, that's what's scary about this movie. He really is drawing it out, being that this entire house is made out of glass. Like, he could really get in anytime he wants. And he had said that originally. He's like, I can come in anytime I want. It's just about when I want to have fun with you. And Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, because it really is like he could make this end anytime he wants. Because literally, there's so many entry points that he could really expose. But he wants to scare her. And that's another thing, too, is this movie just does a really good job so that the audience kind of understands, like, his motivations. Because, I mean, the implication that a killer is playing some kind of sick and twisted game could be enough. But I like that we know. And it's almost interesting, too, because as Maddie is getting to know him as an assailant, we are also starting to get to know him as an assailant. We can hear him. We can see him. We're starting to get to know his motions, what what he's about. And so I think that's a really interesting effect. So Maddie's now thinking, I gotta get out of here. She's probably already thinking it, but she doesn't have any way of getting any help and she knows she's on her own. There's a cool sequence of her trying to move from like spot to spot to spot without being spotted by him on the outside. And there's a really neat moment where she's standing against the wall directly next to a glass door and he comes up and looks in the door to try to see her, but we know she's standing right there. So then she's able to move from like wall to wall in between the windows and she makes it outside the sliding glass door down the deck steps. And then how does she know he's coming? Does she just instinctively hide? Does she see him? Well, she hides under the house mm-hmm. and he's peeking through the windows and the doors and then he shoots her with a crossbow. I think that's how she knows. Oh, that's right. He does shoot at her. He okay, shoots. that'll do it. <laughs> that'll do it. That'll getting shot will tell you. That'll do it. He doesn't get her this time. Oh, shoots at her. You're mm-hmm. right. Either way. She races back to the house. He pursues her. She makes it back in and then more taunting through the glass and retreating. This is where I wrote, he wants to be Daryl from The Walking Dead so bad. I don't, I'm not the one to know the reference. I know. Okay. (laughs) He wants to be Daryl from The Walking Dead. Daryl from The Walking Dead. He is the crossbow zombie killer. 
she goes upstairs to watch him from above and again opens the window slides onto the deck of the roof carefully and i'm like time to rank roof suspense scenes between Mm. amityville orphan (laughs) first kill people just being on roofs doing shit this one is up there it is so she takes her flashlight and throws it very far into the forest oh no it's her like blinking smoke detector no because she uses that later i thought it was the smoke detector that's what i thought too i was like she must have two which makes sense it's a strobing effect though how did she get i don't know because i thought it was the smoke detector until she uses it again later She uses some sort of light device. I don't know what the fuck it is. But she throws it into the forest so that he'll go investigate. She traverses the roof, goes to climb down the trellis, but then is shot in the thigh with a crossbow and then very narrowly misses getting her head taken off. Mm -hmm. She pulls out the arrow as the man tries to climb the trellis to reach her. She knocks him down and then steals his crossbow. Love that. He goes to climb it again, but she makes it back inside, locks the window, And kind of shows him like, hey, I have your crossbow. Fuck you. Yes. And I thought that she could have shot him, but it turns out that the crossbow isn't strung. (laughs) And this is where I wrote, we need Fitch with his crossbow tutorial stat. Oh my God. Yes. Get him in here. Get him in here. Because remember, he's just (laughs) sitting in the bathroom trying to figure out how to load this crossbow. And then she's doing the same exact shit. She's hiding in the bathroom trying to load this crossbow. (laughs) And I'm like, where is Fitch's YouTube tutorial? Because we need it right now. Where is this man? And if you don't know what we're talking about, Fitch from Ready or Not, watch Ready or Not. It's very funny. (laughs) So he walks away. And now she's kind of left in the bathroom to tend to her leg. She bites a rag as she dumps some alcohol on the area to disinfect it. This is a really tough scene. She's in so much pain. I mean, she has to even pull down her pants to like put the disinfectant on. There's something about just not having pants on that feels so vulnerable. Like if you wanted to make this scene like 10 times more heartbreaking, like make this woman have to pull down her jeans and put disinfectant on her wound. This was like a silly thing that I was thinking though. Because, yeah, she pulls out her jeans, but then she puts her jeans back on. And I was like, now, if I were in this situation... (laughs) You'd go get your sweats. Give me my comfies. (laughs) I want to be agile. I want to be able to move. And now these jeans are wet. And I'm going to be thinking about that the entire time. And I need all of my focus on the fact that there is an invader in my house. Like, I will hobble my ass to my bedroom and put my joggers on, okay? Mm. Like, I might be stabbed in the thigh, but I don't want to put wet jeans on again. Okay, I'm gonna go get my comfies and I'm gonna beat my guy in my joggers. So fuck you. So that's what I was laughing. I'm like, girl, go get some sweatpants. While I'm at it, let me go get my sneakers. Exactly. Let me put on my running shoes. (laughs) Oh my God. But she doesn't do that. Okay. She's not thinking about her fashion, unfortunately. (laughs) Or comfort level. Absolutely not. After this, she picks up the crossbow to, I guess, inspect it or try to string it. And she sees a tally count. There's 13 tally marks. So this man has been busy. This is the only thing I think we have that might give any context Mm -hmm. as to what the fuck this man is doing. I mean, it is on the same level as when a stranger calls where it's like Mm -hmm. there's been like these 10 missing girls, but you know nothing about him otherwise, you know? Like, is this his MO? I guess. Women in the woods? I don't know. Then we get a shot. We see that the killer has been watching her from the bathroom window as she tries to restring the crossbow. But it's really sad because she's crying and she cannot get this crossbow to string. Meanwhile, John has arrived. I love John. Oh, I hated John. I hated John. (laughs) Well, I hated him because he could have been so helpful and he wasn't. 
But I love He was him. the most unhelpful. Sarah's boyfriend, John, has arrived at Maddie's house looking for Sarah. So we just hear knocking and like, Sarah? From the front of the house. We see the killer see and move into action. And of course, Maddie doesn't know. So the man masquerades as a police officer. He makes John kneel and look at his ID and gets John to give up a ton of fucking information Mm -hmm. that Maddie lives alone. Sarah and him live next door. This... (laughs) The man says, oh, I'm a deputy. I was responding to a call. An intruder knocked me out and stole my badge, gun, and phone, and then asks for John's phone to call for backup. The man takes John's phone, fakes a dispatch. John reads the lipstick on the door and then confirms, oh, yeah, she doesn't have a boyfriend or any family that lives nearby. I'm like, fucking goddammit, John. Shut the fuck up. He's a man. He doesn't have to think like that. Shut the fuck up. But he also sees Sarah's earring on the ground. Right. Which we know it's her earring. He also used, I guess, maybe her other earring or that same earring, I don't know, to taunt Maddie with earlier. Oh, yeah. So he sees that. We can recognize on John's face that he recognizes that earring. And we can see that he is being suspicious. In my head, I'm thinking, like, is he just giving up information because he knows he's going to take action? I don't know. Meanwhile, Maddie is still trying to string the fucking bow and she can't get it. Back to the man and John on the porch, we can see John eyeing up this rock. He starts telling the assailant, hey, you know, I think Maddie keeps a key in like a fake rock down there. We could probably get it and get into the house really easy. It's definitely down there. Right when it looks like the man is about to reach down for some random rock, Maddie appears at the door and starts banging on it to get John's attention. That distracts John. And then right away, he's stabbed super quick with some kind of blade in the neck. I wrote, John gets a ding, ding, fwee, (laughs) to the throat. (laughs) Wait, what was ding, ding, fwee from? Scream. Oh my God. Yes, Vince. 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 (laughs) Ding, ding. Oh my god, it was so fast. And I hate this trope. I hate this trope. I hate when somebody's about to fix everything and some poor soul accidentally distracts them long enough for them to get killed. It kills me to see. Oh my god. Wow, all right. Yep, he gets a ding ding fwee. John goes down swinging, gets stabbed again. The man thanks Maddie for showing up, admits, oh yeah, I couldn't beat John in a fucking fight. Mm -hmm. But then John, in his bleeding out glory, charges him, wrestles him, and chokes him out and tells Maddie to run. Yeah, so this is where we get into some interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. So she does run. She runs outside past them, but then ends up getting clobbered by the man, beat with the rock in the head. Mm-hmm. Because we remember her leg is severely at a disadvantage. Right Correct. Now. Nah, it's fake. We're getting some Amityville stuff uh-huh. going on here. But then we use that moment to get into this really sick, awesome moment where just like we had heard before when Maddie was running through different ending ideas in her head as she was writing... We are getting Maddie running through different ending options as she tries to figure out what the fuck to do. She says, you can't outrun him on that leg. The crossbow has to be a perfect shot in the heart or in the brain. Anything else is not going to cut it, but it's a long distance weapon. It's useless indoors. Go outside, get the power back on. He could have flipped a switch or cut the wires. And then it shows that she's getting killed from behind Mm -hmm. if she does that. Hiding, bedroom, bathroom, loft. 
Windows in each, all he needs is a rock. Best case scenario, he doesn't find you and you bleed to death. But you're seeing all of these fates play out as she's talking herself through all of these scenarios. Head outside to the crawl space. He already knows you tried that once. There's little to no room to maneuver. And he figures out you're there. And then, again, image of her getting dragged out and beaten to death. You're cold, dizzy, sweaty. Your fingernails are blue. Your vision is fading. We are running out of time. How long before you can't stand up or even see? Once he's in the house, it's over. He's bigger, stronger, faster. He has the advantage. He can hear you. You can't run. You can't hide. You can't wait. And it shows every time she says you can't run, why she would die if she ran, why you can't hide, why you can't wait. It's showing her die in every single option, like all of these endings. It's so good. It's so good. Mm -hmm. Too many endings. They are all the same, which means there is only one ending he won't expect. You can't run, hide, or wait. So what does that leave? Kill him. (laughs) Yes. I love this moment. So she has figured out what she needs to do. Outside, the killer arms himself with a tire iron that he gets from Maddie's car. He talks to John's corpse about his options. I know. (laughs) It's funny, but it's also sick. It is. I always love those contrasting moments. He decides, we hear because he's talking to fucking John, to wait a little bit more for her to lose more blood. Then, bitch the cat shows up, and the killer sees, and he starts talking to this cat, and he's basically like, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna kill you. And he basically is thinking about using this cat to again taunt Maddie with, like he did with Sarah. I wrote, LOL, my cat would lay on the lap of a man that killed me so long as he was a warm body. <laughs> but like, like he literally, and that's what this cat's doing. He's like rubbing up that's on what his cats leg. Do. I know, I know. I know. So as he's distracted with this cat, all of a sudden he gets shot in the shoulder with a crossbow, turns and looks. It's Maddie. She's standing on the deck, crossbow in hand, and she's taking her shot. But I also love that we know that she immediately knows it wasn't enough. She immediately retreats into the house. And as she's trying to shut the door, her arm gets caught in the door. There's... She's trying to bring the crossbow back into the house. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it gets stuck because it's too wide. Mm-hmm. So as she's trying to do it, he slams the glass door on her hand and fucking mangles it. Well, first. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. You're right. On her wrist. <laughs> on her wrist. And then he takes his big, stupid, oh. fugly feet and stomps on her hand a bunch of times. That's what really ends up making. Yeah, you're right. Sure. I forgot about that. Um, I didn't forget that You part. didn't forget. No. Unfortunately, my trauma response to these <laughs> horror movies didn't do me the favor of forgetting that little detail. <laughs> So he just bashes her hand and then somehow she gets it back inside and locks the door. So I don't know. I think he's still playing. I think in his head, he feels like he can still take his time because she's still alive and she's now even more at a disadvantage. She's lost power over her hand. She's in more pain. She's inside. He's on the outside threatening to enter the house again. And Maddie, just when you think, don't think because she's not done. He's telling her, I'm going to come in the house, whatever, blah, blah, blah. She dips her finger (laughs) into her, like, makeshift bandage on her leg, like a freaking quill and ink, (laughs) and writes, do it, coward, on the door in her own fucking blood. And by the way, the fact that she can write backwards is a big flex. Yeah, I would be be doing shit backwards. I would be be like, "Mm, I'm going to write it the way I can read it, and you can just figure it out. You can figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. But, oh, and then this music score kicks in where he turns, walks to the car to get the tire iron, Mm. and then she runs to the laptop and writes, five, nine, green eyes, brown hair, tattoo on neck, 
Love you, mom, dad, and Max. I died fighting. Oh, oh my God. And this music is kicking in and the score is kicking in just as this guy is using the tire iron to try to break through this glass door, but the glass door won't let through, which is pretty cool. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty strong glass. Which also makes me feel a lot better because it's like, why would you just have a house that has so much glass in it? But it's like, oh, you got the right glass. Nice. She hides in the bathroom. I wrote, she's getting a little woozy here because she's losing a lot of blood. And I do remember writing this, I think a little later in my notes. I'm like, I appreciate that this movie's realistic to the fact that she's been actively bleeding and traumatized all night and her body should be experiencing the effects of that. Thank you, Scream 5. Whatever the (laughs) fuck. Whatever. So she's hiding in the bathroom and then we see the light change behind her. Looks like sparkles are falling like confetti behind her. But instead, it's the man coming through the fucking window in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. He speaks behind her in the tub. You know what? I think you're holding out on me. I bet if I hit the right spot, I can make you scream, which is both sexual and horrifying. Yeah, that is so sexual, actually. But as he's speaking, she feels him inadvertently exhale on her neck. This is, again, really similar to Sarah's death. How can you not feel that? But I can be a little bit more forgiving here because she's losing blood. Yeah, like she's, she's like not in the right state. Yeah. Yes. But something about this breath on her neck, I guess, being so close, like the actual like movement on her body. This moment. Oh, my God. I forgot about this. So she still is holding the knife in her hand. Her eyes widen, she reaches up her arm and turns to her left to stab him. And she narrowly misses him as he's coming around on the other side to stab her. Mm -hmm. He like nicks her shoulder blade, but she ends up stabbing him in the kneecap. It's so good. It's so fucking good. You know what this is giving? What? Have you ever seen Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr.? I haven't. Okay, so there are a couple bits in those movies where he, because she's Sherlock Holmes, can't anticipate the way a fight's going to play out and does it. There are all these really cool, like, choreographed fight movements. This reminds me of that. But she ends up running out to the kitchen, but she is very much experiencing blood loss at this point, and we think she might pass out on the kitchen floor. He hobbles into the kitchen, sees her laying on the ground. They make eye contact. He says, you fucking cunt. But then when you think once she's down for the count, she hits him with a can of Hornet spray to the eyes and he can't fucking see. (laughs) But I wrote, they're kind of on the same level now Mm -hmm. in terms of like senses being deprived from them. Mm -hmm. And this is where she picks up the sonic fire alarm and uses it to disorient him because it's flashing lights. It's very loud. It's deafening him in a way. He goes falling back. But he gets control, throws her on the ground, kicks her. She bites him. There's a big struggle. Again, kitchen fight scene. Add it to the list. (laughs) He begins to strangle her as the light flashes and the alarm continues to sound. But you begin to hear her heartbeat slow. Her memories start flashing before her eyes. She's slowing down, struggling. But she was drinking wine earlier. So guess what's there? A corkscrew baby. A corkscrew baby. She grabs a corkscrew, gets him in the neck. I'm like, wow, everything really came back here. Like the fact that she opened a bottle of wine at the beginning of the movie. The first shot of the movie. Oh my God. Mike Flanagan is just so (laughs) Flanagan. I love him. And it's red wine, by the way, which Uh, I think is also good. My gosh. (laughs) He begins bleeding out. They collapse next to each other. Very Romeo and Juliet looking. Didn't you think so? Yes. Agreed. Gets her phone from his back pocket. Dials 911. Collapses again. 
camera pans over Sarah's body, John's body, the killer's body, and then Maddie wanders out onto the porch and the cat sits with her <laughs> as the police approach and she smiles, giving very much ready or not. Yes. Even though ready or not came out after this, but either way. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> wow. This is a great movie. I loved this. It moves so fast. It does. And it's an hour and a half. It's a movie. Yeah. You're never wondering, when are we getting to the point? Everything is so intentional. Everything is so purposeful. Mm -hmm. The acting is so good. Mm -hmm. So some post-plot stuff. There was some criticism to this movie just about the fact that Kate Siegel played a deaf-mute person, and she is not a deaf-mute person in her real life. So this comes from the article, How Deafness and Horror Evolved Beyond Damsels in Distress by Kristen Lopez. And she writes, both Flanagan and Siegel are open to criticism against the movie, and they exist. Deaf blogger Rebecca Ann Withy broke down many of the criticisms against the feature when it came out, most notably Siegel's inconsistent use of ASL. Deaf actress Millicent Simmons of A Quiet Place called the movie inauthentic, saying, I saw it with some of my deaf friends and we were pretty highly critical of it just because it didn't feel real. Flanagan and Siegel are open and apologetic about their decision to cast Siegel in the role and says it's not a decision they would make today. Mm. I listen and I apologize. We were given a strong education when the film came out, Siegel said. She recognizes anything she'd say about why they would cast a non-deaf actress is an excuse. But factoring in how few disabled women are on screen at all, Maddie remains a heroine to many disabled and able-bodied fans. There is a huge lack of representation, she said. I think it is a huge service to a vibrant community. Flanagan said the conversation about inclusion and representation is a vital one, and he hopes that future projects of his can support that effort. And I will say, breaking from the article, that in The Midnight Club, he does have a character that uses a wheelchair, played by an actress who uses a wheelchair in real that. life. So, so he put his money where his he, mouth is. Yes, exactly. He has gotten better in terms mm -hmm. of that representation. Back to the article. The tide is definitely turning where Hush failed in its casting. Deafness is seeing more of a positive push in the horror field with Simmons' character, Reagan, in A Quiet Place. Upon reading the script for the John Krasinski-directed horror feature, Simmons said she was shocked. That moment was really powerful for me because I've never seen anything like that before. It was so different that it used the deaf perspective portrayed as an advantage. Mm. In response to features like Hush, Simmons said there's only so much an able body performer can do. You can't really do enough research if you're not living it. If you're not in this situation and you're not living with it and you don't sign, then it's hard to express that and still have it feel real, which absolutely... I don't know if you've seen A Quiet Place. I am way too scared. Honestly, it's really good. But like, <laughs> but like, I do really love Reagan's character in that because you're seeing how John Krasinski's character is trying to make Reagan hear the entire movie. He's making these different cochlear implants and trying to make her hear because he wants her to be safe, not realizing that her not being able to hear in a world where these aliens prey upon noise is like such an advantage. Mm -hmm. It is really authentic. And I think the Krasinski's really did that well. And again, I think Flanagan and Siegel have learned from the reception of this movie that perhaps, you know, Siegel in that role wasn't the best idea, but I still do think by using the consultant that it's still portrayed in a respectful light. 
I think of Ivy in the village, right? About how she was like the perfect person to like leave the village and come back and how that was like used to her advantage and everything like that, you know? For the majority of the movie, Maddie's deafness was a disadvantage. But at the end, when she was able to disorient the killer and when she was able to, like you said, take away his senses where she became the person with the experience and she could navigate the scene, like that was such a cool moment, but unfortunately was only a small moment. And that's the thing too with art and anything like this. I feel like all you can do is listen to what people tell you and do it better next time. And I love hearing that this director and also Kate Siegel are people that seem like they listen to that and they take it moving forward. And I hope that it just, you know, makes them better at what they do. And this is expanded upon also by another article by Kristen Lopez. And Kristen Lopez identifies as disabled, which I thought was important when collecting all of these things that was coming from somebody with that perspective. In the article, what a movie like Hush means for disabled representation. And she writes, let's get it out of the way. Hush is far from perfect. As seen in several films portraying disabled people, Kate Siegel isn't actually deaf. And the film follows the trend of deafening her after an illness late in life. This latter part is important because it perpetuates the concept that able-bodied people won't relate to a disabled person unless the character has experience being normal only to have it taken away from them which is interesting being that the consultant told them to do it that way. Lots of different perspectives here, which I appreciate all of them. The removal of a key sense anchors an able-bodied audience to her plight. Again, it's why mentioning that she was once able to hear is crucially included, but unlike stereotypical portrayals, there's nothing superhuman about Maddie's senses. She isn't superhero gifted with supervision. In fact, other than a necessity to see, senses aren't really played on. The masked man cuts her power, limiting her vision for both characters, and they experience pain repeatedly. Outside of the man's crossbow, the two are, for all intents and purposes, placed on equal footing. Then again, Maddie, in a rare fit of divergence from convention, actually uses the knives in her house. (laughs) Which I, I thought was very funny. That's good. Maddie's disability is a disadvantage, but not one exploited. The man incorrectly assumes Mm -hmm. Maddie is weaker or deficient, tapping on the glass and standing behind her as a means of testing her disability. But by the end, Maddie's disability ends up being an advantage while skirting the superhuman element above. She gains the upper hand against her attacker by feeling his breath on her neck. And those who are disability-free, Maddie's friends Sarah and John, are quickly dispatched, proof positive that able-bodiedness doesn't equal invincibility. Mm. Too often in the horror genre, being a terrorized woman is a disadvantage in itself. <laughs> yeah. Maddie's fear and terror is universal, probably the most universal element within Hush. There's little distinction between Maddie or Audrey Hepburn in Wait Until Dark or in any other woman within a captive women genre of horror. Maddie must rely on her intelligence to get out alive, and the film gives great moments highlighting Maddie's intelligence, stopping the narrative to have Maddie work out a series of scenarios for her escape. We're given an entrance into Maddie's mind, and despite it requiring speech, it praises active femininity. One could say Maddie's inability to speak represents the strangled voice of stifled women throughout the world. Oh, wow. Lots of really interesting ideas there. Yeah, the fact that Sarah and John are so quickly taken out, they can communicate with the killer and they can hear the killer and they can like see, hear, feel him coming in a different way that Maddie can't. Mm -hmm. But the fact that she's the one that comes out on the other end of it. And I also like for the killer himself, like his assumption that Maddie is at a disadvantage is his demise. I think commenting on lesser expectations for individuals with disabilities, it's like, that's your own downfall. Like that will be your shortcoming that will not reflect on the person with that disability. But we loved this. Yeah, definitely. 
home invasion movies always stress me out. I'm always very nervous. But there were a lot of things about this movie that I thought, even, you know, a couple like humorous moments. I liked that the killer was unmasked. I thought that there was really cool blocking camera stuff going on. It felt different. It felt like a different take on something that we've seen before. And I hope that they make more movies because I will see them. (laughs) I dare say. (laughs) I want to cover more of the Flanniverse. (laughs) I want to cover anything Kate Siegel is in. We had a really good time with this one. And especially coming off after all the artsy things with fucking Suspiria (laughs) and the Lords of Salem. I feel like this was a nice thing to get our blood moving again, you know? (laughs) Yes, the pace was really nice. And I think in season two, like lots of leaves, very foliage in the woods, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I believe the movie takes place in the fall, doesn't it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. There's flannels. There's orange leaves. Absolutely. Mm, Flannels in the flanniverse. (laughs) So if you want to keep in touch with us, feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com and or feel free to follow us on Instagram at thehorrorspodcast. And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.